This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audiobook Club is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Art of Storytelling, which provides tools to help everyone enhance their own storytelling skills. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash book club. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of The Magician's Land by Lev Grossman. I'm Dan Coyce, the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's New York recording studio. Joining me here are two special guests to the Audio Book Club. First, Slate assistant editor Miriam Cruel. Hey, Miriam. Hi, Dan. And we're also joined by the co-founder of The All and the author of Very Recent History, Corey Sika. Hi, Corey. Hi, everyone, and Dan and Miriam. So, as is always the case with the Audiobook Club, we will be spoiling things that happened in this book, the third book of the Magician's Trilogy by Lev Grossman. So if you are a person who doesn't want to get spoiled, please read the book first and then come back and listen to us. We are not going anywhere. We will remain right here in your iPhone or SoundCloud window. So The Magician's Land is the third in the Magician's Trilogy, which was best described initially, maybe, as... Harry Potter, but with sex and booze, but which has changed quite a bit throughout the three books of the trilogy. In this third volume, the magical land of Fillory is dying, and King Elliot and Queen Janet search the land for a way to save it. Meanwhile, Quentin, the series' ostensible main character, is back on Earth searching for a purpose, and the purpose he eventually lands on is trying to bring back Alice, his lost love, who in the first book transformed into a kind of demon called a Niffin, a magical being of pure blue light and hate. I want to talk about a lot of things in our conversation today in the book and in the series as a whole. And among them, I want to talk about how Grossman's views of heroism and maturity seem to have evolved over the course of the series. I want to talk about Quentin's return to Break Bills, the magical school that we first explored in book one. I want to talk about the new character in this book, Plum, an expelled Break Bill student and the last remaining descendant of the Chatwin family, the family who first discovered Fillory. But I thought we might start by just surveying some of the major characters one by one and talking a little bit about the paths that they take. And through that, we can start to figure out how we all felt about this book, which I think we had all had a lot of different feelings about this book. Um, let's start, as you do in your Slate review that was published this summer, Corey, with Julia. You make the argument in your review that Julia is really at the heart of the whole trilogy and that she is Lev Grossman's sort of true avatar in the books. And I think that that is really true. I mean, I think that she is the character that his heart is really with and book two really revealed that. But one thing that frustrated me a little bit in book three is that there is really not that much Julia, for example. She mostly sort of waltzes around. She's three quarters God and she looks at stuff and every once in a while she saves everyone. Did you feel like Julia's story got the kind of payoff or the kind of emotional resolution that you wanted in this? Almost, like, which I feel like we'll be saying almost a lot today. Like, yes and no. So, as you know, if you've read the book, which you, of course you have, you wouldn't be listening to this like a fool. Julia, you know, basically is the engineer of the savior of the world of Fillory, which is a good sort of use of her tale mm -hmm. and also might be a little uh, glancing, a little brief, a little this, a little that. I'm going to agree with that, but... 
only part of it. Um, <laughs> I kind of have to say a little bit more about my feelings about the book to get into Julia. Do it. I kind of wish Fillory did die. So yes. I'm kind of upset by her role in saving it. Also to jump to the Magician Kings, where this whole thing happens where she becomes this demigod. And we find out about what was happening to her while Quentin was at Breaksville. She had this like really traumatic experience that brought up a lot of hoopla about a fox god raping her. And there was a lot of discussion about this being a very powerful scene, this being a very problematic scene. And to me, the payoff of that being she becomes a god is very confusing, not something that I was happy with. And then she's no longer this real human character. She no longer has these kind of real human emotions that the other characters have. And then her role is to be not a Jesus character because she doesn't die to save Fillory, but she kind of is like, oh, well, now you had this horrible experience. You are going to be the savior. And I kind of was like, nope, that's not how I want Julia to end off. So you feel like the ostensible message that to be raped by a fox god turns you into an emotionless shell of a human who nonetheless has magical powers was not appropriate? That was a great summation of what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It seems like a slightly bluntly literal reading of a extremely fanciful tale. I mean, I know that we are meant to believe emotionally in the horrible thing that happened to her in book two. We are meant to believe in the emotional impact of that rape as it being sort of like maybe even the worst rape that ever happened in the universe because it was by a 12-foot-tall fox god. Because we see her in book two being this really fascinating, complex character with all of these kind of emotions that we want to follow. And the way that Quentin was a really, well, at least to me, an attractive character in the first book, because I kind of could relate to him in many ways. I read it as soon as I graduated college. It was like a very great place for me to read it because I was feeling a lot of the feelings that he was feeling. And I kind of understood what he was going through. Then it comes to book two and I'm like, oh, here's this Julia character that I'm now understanding in a completely different way. And she has all of these experiences that maybe I didn't experience, but I can relate to a lot of the thoughts that she's going through. And then it's just like, oh, now you understand Julia. We're just totally going to erase her character mm-hmm. and give her no more feelings. Was there a character in book three who you had that with? No. So is that maybe at the root <laughs> of your feelings about is, book three? That is possibly at the root of my feelings, though I really think that Fillory not dying is at the root of my feelings. I see. I love the idea of Fillory dying, too. I think that'd be great. Because it's the end of stupidity and childhood. And it was a wreck. The whole thing was a disaster. The Chatwins were a mess. I mean, that was how I felt book one and two were realistic in that way, where it was a fantasy book that didn't have fantastical notions about how the world worked, which is a really weird thing to say, I realize. But book three was kind of like, actually, I'm going to take everything I was saying in book one and book two and say, the world is a fantasy and you can live in this fantasy world. And spoiler, you can also build other fantasy worlds. And that was kind of like when it went off the rails for me. All right. So let's talk about that ending because you both are pretty exercised about it. So yes, I agree with you, Miriam, that The message of book one and book two seemed to be that if there really was such a place as Narnia, basically, it would potentially be kind of awful. And it would warp people who visited it. It would be filled with danger that could kill people as well as magic. And that isn't necessarily something to wish for. And the arc of Quentin in this third book seems to suggest until the very, very end that finding happiness in a life on Earth and finding a task in a life on Earth can be just as important to a human being as this fanciful magical land that is not necessarily all it cracked up to be. But yes, at the end of the book, we are presented with this sort of alternate view that Fillory is worth saving, that for all its weirdness and awfulness and danger, especially through the eyes of like Elliot and Janet, for whom the the place really matters, that we 
are led to this idea that Fillory itself is so wondrous that a place like that is always worth saving. Now, the argument the book is making, I would think, it has to do with that little plant that Quentin finds at the very end, right? Mm-hmm. Which is meant to represent the wonder and beauty that he saw as a child when he first read the Fillory books. Do you guys buy maybe this argument on the book's behalf that, sure, fantasy is dangerous and deadly, but the beauty that it brings us, especially when we're children, it makes it worth having something like that live in our imaginations? Or do you feel like not killing off Fillory was essentially a cop-out because it allowed these characters to retain these delusions, essentially, and made an argument on behalf of those delusions in everyday life? Well, I kind of want to separate the two things mm-hmm. you just said, because mm-hmm. I, I agree with the first part what you were saying, how there is a value to fantasy. And that was kind of what I was getting from the first two books as well, not just the third book. But then when you say there's a value to fantasy for children and, I mean, for adults as well, in a different way, that's different than saying these people should continue to live in a fantasy world. Because I really felt strongly that the whole point was that they shouldn't live in a fantasy world. And I want to give Corey time to respond to that. But I think it's important. But all of them, all of them, can't we let... Like Elliot and Janet live well, in the fantasy world? Okay, so Elliot and Janet, mean, maybe we can, but I hope we're going to get to Alice like almost immediately because oh. Alice is like mm. really a strong part of this fantasy notion coming to life and everything's able to work out for everyone because I'm going to just, I guess, introduce Alice into this conversation now because in book three, we get Alice as a Niffin and then we have Quentin bring her back to life in this like really insane, magical way that... Is just preposterous. Like the her dying in book one was such a tragic, wonderful, horrible scene that really kind of made the whole progression of the book give it a lot more heart and sadness. And then when you bring her back, you kind of negate everything you built up to that point. And I felt that Fillory was the exact same thing, where you're like, oh, this horrible thing is going to happen to Fillory, and they're like, nope, never mind. Everything can work out for you in the end. What about you, Corey? So there's no way to end this book. Basically, I feel like. So the whole point of saving Fillory is that they have to save magic. So they have to get together with Handsless. Wait, does uh, magic die if Fillory dies? That's basically what they intimate in the library scene near the end. So like they get a view down the pillar, down the hole, right, of like the the big giant gods like pulling wires and stuff. And they say – basically they say that – and people may disagree. It's fine. But that if Fillory is actually made of magic, is not a magical place. And so – this it is the conduit by which you can access the multiverses magic. This is all very nonsensical, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like it sort of hangs together. It the mythology point. in the book makes absolutely no sense yeah, to it me. It's like a little hang. It's turtles all the way down, guys. <laughs> it's actually literally turtles all the way down, which is a problem. Also, yeah. So, yeah. Well, but then he just wants to take everything. Like that's the thing about him that I sort of admire is he wants to take. Every piece of fantasy and magic and lore and be like, no, it's all true. I respect that. Uh, Yeah, I'm down. I mean, I feel like as a writerly impulse, Mm -hmm. I prefer that to cautious reserve, right? I prefer Lev Grossman's willingness to go emotionally all out to kill off or defile or do horrible things to characters to go fantastically all out and be like, yes, you know what? Also, the horses should talk. Yes, you know what? Also, it should literally be turtles all the way down. Yes, you know what? Also, there should be a second fillery underneath fillery that we barely right. even see. Sure. Why not? Yeah. We should have all have that it all. stuff. Yeah. Well, but when that happens, you have no logic. To mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you can argue that fantasy doesn't need logic. But when I'm reading this book, I feel like everything is a clue in some way. 
and I'm thinking that I can figure out what Lev Grossman is trying to get at. So when he introduces characters into the story, I'm like, okay, this character is going to serve a purpose, and I'm going to try and figure out how they fit into the narrative of the story. But when your mythology just doesn't have this kind of underlying purpose, and you're just going to introduce characters, and you're going to introduce weird things that happen that don't tie into other things, I kind of lose faith in the whole world of Fillory and the whole way Fillory works. And if I don't understand how the magic works, which I guess I didn't understand when I was reading it, then how am I supposed to kind of get drawn into this world in any kind of real and compelling way? No, it's totally fair. I, yeah, no, but yeah. I did. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I also didn't necessarily 100% get the notion that if Fillory died, magic died. Although maybe I did. I can't even really remember exactly. Mostly, right. I mostly I feel like whenever it got to one of those sections that was people explaining what they had to do for the plot to save Fillory or whatever, I would just sort of zip through it and not worry about it. Like basically whenever a Chatwin was talking <laughs> or there were clock trees or whatever, I would just be like, okay, good, 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 good. All right. Oh, hey, more witticisms. Hey, more adventure. And so for me, the books were totally satisfying in that respect and – so the ending, I think, didn't strike me as so upsetting because that was actually what I really wanted. I wanted there to be Fillory forever. I didn't want to live in it, but I wanted it to be there and you forever. And you wanted an additional bridge world to Fillory as well. Sure, because then there might be a sequel, right? Right. Mm. Sure. I mean, that's the only way that I kind of not forgave because I don't know if I want a sequel at this point, mm-hmm. but I kind of forgave it because I was like, oh, I guess he does want to keep on writing even right. though he says it's a trilogy. It's right. going to continue. Or at the very least, it gives them a lot more options for the TV series. Right. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Which will be... Which is happening, supposedly. Yep. They're shooting a pilot, yeah, for sci-fi. It will... Yeah. Actually, we talk about all the problems with Alice and the problems with Plum and the problems with Julia. We never talk about the problems of the story of Penny, which is bizarre. You know what I mean? Yeah. It sort of works. Like he ends up this librarian in the... Netherlands or Netherlands. Oh, well, it depends on where you're from, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In the in the Netherlands of where the book of every world is written, where the book of every person who's been in that world is written, which is a thing that is a lovely concept that you cannot make sense of. And so this points to a problem which is driving you crazy, I think, which is that Books like this depend on characters withholding. So they run into people over and over again who may or may not know things but will never tell you. So there's a lot of – and this is a problem with all all literature again, I guess, which is sort of ridiculous to say. But so it's like literally like they don't know things and they're finding out things but it's actually all recorded and people could have told them answers all along. Like for example, if one of them had been willing to just open up his own book. Yes. If Elliot had been willing to open up his two-volume history of Elliot. He could have been like, oh, well, this is – guys, this is how it all works out. Yeah, for starters. Or like literally like, you know, you could go read up on magic in the big magic library. Right. Sure. But I I guess I'm unwilling unwilling to worry too much about a criticism of a novel that's based on the concept of the controlling intelligence of the novel doling out information at a certain rate. Like that's literally the definition of storytelling. All right. Let's pause for a moment and shout out to our sponsor, The Great Courses. The desire to learn doesn't stop after college. As every ABC listener knows, one of the reasons you read is to expose yourself to other worlds and to help yourself learn all throughout life, to learn from the experiences of other characters, to learn from nonfiction and fiction. And it's that same motivation that drives the great courses. The great courses are engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and 
each set of great courses includes a whole set of lectures going through a topic in a very step-by-step way. Uh, you can listen to them on audio, on your podcast player. You can watch them on video, on a screen, or on a tablet or other device. They're extremely well shot and well recorded and well put together. And we have a special offer for audiobook club listeners. The Great Courses course on the art of storytelling is a perfect fit for you if you're a listener because ABC listeners love great stories. And the art of storytelling teaches you how to tell those kinds of stories yourself, whether it's fiction, whether you're trying to create characters and plots for a novel, whether it's nonfiction, whether you're trying to tell stories from your own life, as in many of the memoirs that we've talked about in the audiobook club. This engaging course, The Art of Storytelling, provides insights into the history of telling stories. It uncovers the hidden meaning and psychology behind different types of stories, and it provides tools to help everyone enhance their own storytelling skills right down to stuff as practical as how do I stand when I'm telling a story? How do I use my hands? How do I inhabit a character? Stuff like that. It's taught by Hannah Harvey, who's a super engaging, lively, fun professor. She's got a PhD from UNC in performance studies and, and communication studies. And the art of storytelling is just one of over 500 topics at the great courses, including stuff on history and science and photography. You can watch or listen anywhere, and there are no exams. So that's like college, except for without the worst part. So we have a special offer for Audiobook Club listeners. You can get this course, The Art of Storytelling, um, and get 80% off the original price. This 80% off savings is only available for a limited time, and you can get it by going to the special URL that we have set up just for this. It's thegreatcourses.com slash book club. That's thegreatcourses.com slash book club. So please go check it out. It's a really great deal. It's a super cool course. And use our URL so that the fine people, the great courses know that you are a listener and that you found them through us. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash book club. All right, back to our discussion. I think that Alice is actually someone we should talk about more. You brought her up, Miriam, briefly, but I think her return to humanity is a pretty key and signature moment. You found it really frustrating because you thought it negated essentially the emotional impact of her death in book one. I feel the opposite. I feel like it was a really powerful and wonderful sequence, and I loved the transformation that it suggested in Quentin. I loved Alice as a tool for us to be able to see the transformation that Quentin had undergone. I loved Alice as a person coming to her own and figuring out what it was about life that she actually loved, specifically Bacon. I really liked that sequence. I thought it was really powerful, and I thought the magic of it was really nicely drawn. And to me, it doesn't negate the sadness of her death in book one. She's still there in book one dying, right? You and I both agree that Alice dying and coming back is pretty much Buffy season six. Yes, that that's correct. It's the whole <laughs> concept of like, oh boy. she is this character. She's like this crazy, magical character mm-hmm. who goes somewhere and her friends don't really know where she went. And they think that she's having this horrible, horrible experience. And then finally, they like pull her out back into the world. And like, they don't understand why she's not appreciative. And it's because she was living the best life right. in this other place. She and they brought her she back was to her. In heaven. Yeah, exactly. I. Oh, yeah. Definitely rewatched that. <laughs> so she has this feeling that she was brought back to a place she didn't want to be, which with Buffy, I kind of wanted her to come back because she was essential to the story in that right. way, in a way that Alice, while I really enjoy her as a character, didn't feel like she needed to come back for Quentin because essentially what you were telling me is that you felt that she came back and helped us understand Quentin better. And you know what? I don't want Alice to come back to help us understand Quentin better. Also, I didn't understand Quentin better after Alice came back. 
So you did not see any real shift in Quentin's character? You thought he was sort of the same callow asshole at the end of book three that he was in book one and two? I don't know if callow asshole is the right word, but I think that he still got his way. He basically was still able to convince Alice that what he did was right, and he's still able to kind of achieve all the things he wants to do. So for him, this didn't change the course of what he was doing. It just like helped him do what he was doing better. But he was right. It is better to be a human being than to be a demon of pure light and energy and hatred. Are you sure? I'm so into it. Okay. I'm ready. Certainly the ethos of this book, Corey, is that it's better to be human than to be inhuman. Uh, I'm willing. Can we at least get a two-thirds vote around the table that it is better to be human than inhuman? I mean, I think Alice comes to believe that at the end. So that's good. Right. She's like, okay, I'll live. So when I went back and reread all the books for the second or third time, uh, they're long-ish. I mean, whatever. The uh, I, read, I read them in like an hour and a half, Corey. Really? <laughs> but then, but well, then you don't. But then, what do you remember? But you actually nothing. have a good memory, right? Exactly. Well, every, it was pleasant. Every memory. review I read basically said that the fantasy of the book is immediately forgettable. Like yeah. the characters mm. you can remember, but the fantasy is really forgettable. And right. that's why I had to go back and reread them. Yeah. Because honestly, I started reading book three and I was like, I don't remember who these gods are. I don't remember right. like even how Fillory works exactly. So I had to reread them for this like magicalness. Yeah. If you read them as they come out, like one and a half to two years apart, you're literally like, I don't know. So I had to go back because when they start bringing up Alice in book three, I was literally like, I don't remember... Like, their relationship really faded for me from book one in that intervening time. And when you go back and reread book one, it actually is far more significant, far more emotionally invested. Like, all I kind of remembered from book one originally was sort of like, oh, they cheated on each other and were jerks to each other. But actually, it was much more involved and invested in Alice, which makes more sense of Alice's stuff in book three. And I guess in the end, I don't don't mind a series that doesn't do a great job delivering a coherent or believable fantasy world when it gives me characters and dialogue as vivid and fun as the characters and dialogue in these books, you know? Yes. And so, yes, I agree with you, Miriam, that in the end, I agree with other critics who have said the point of this is these characters. And so for me, the ability, for example, to discover that in this third book, Lev Grossman with like Elliot and Janet, for example, seems to be essentially creating brand new characters out of a sort of shame that he made them so shallow and paper thin in the first couple of books. The people he turned them into were so delightful, like that Corey's making a face at me. No, they are. You're right. No, you're right. But I, it just left me wanting more. Like sure. I would read the Elliot Janet book. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My main response after reading The Magician's Land is I want someone to just start a Janet web series of the Janet adventures. One of the most gratifying parts about book three, I feel like, is when Janet tells the story of her trip to the desert. Yes. It's fantastic. It's so good. I want to read a little section from that, actually, because that was also my favorite part. Because she really reveals her conflicts. Like, she really reveals... She reveals her personhood. Yeah. She was not a person before Mm -hmm. this section. She was a walking library of witticisms and aggression. She was very sassy. She was super sassy, and she was great. She was really great at that, in the way that Elliot was really great at being sort of a louche gay king. Mm -hmm. But they both revealed very surprising depths in this book. And this section, I mean, I wish I could just read all of chapter 12. It starts on page 147. But there are two things that I loved about this. I love the story she actually told of the trial she went through in the desert and how she got her magnificent ice axes. But I also like the way that she told the story to him, which was very true to their Mm. banter and their repartee, the way they have always talked to each other. But so it's the chapter starts out like this. 
It wasn't until a couple of hours later, when they were back on their horses and heading southwest, the direction of blessedly solid dry ground, and eventually, Barian and its clear alcoholic balm, that Janet cleared her throat and said, So I guess you're probably wondering how I all of a sudden turned into an amazing ice goddess with magic axis just now. Elliot was, actually. But he was going to see how long he could go without mentioning it. It wasn't that he didn't want to know. They both knew he did. It was a game they played. And then she tells this long, torturous, incredible story of this epic journey into the desert and a task she was given and the people she killed and the ice axes she stole. And then at the end, she says, well, before I left, I took a spear away from him. I still had the strength going, so I broke it in half with my bare hands right in front of him. And I formed an axe head on the end of each one out of ice. Not bad, right? I was going to say, consider yourself annexed, bitch, or something like that. But sometimes an exit line just feels de trop, you know? Yeah, Elliot said quietly. I know. I really do. So anyway, Janet said, that's how I got my new axes. And it all brings to mind this thing that Elliot notices about her right in the middle of this section on page 149, which to me was one of the great pleasures of this book and of all of Lev Grossman's writing is his ability to very clearly delineate the different ways that people talk and the ways that the people talk in different ways to different people, right? Elliot to Quentin is different than Elliot to Janet. And the specific repartee relationship between Elliot and Janet really meant a lot to me in this book. And I love this section where Elliot explains what it is he notices about Janet, the way he thinks of her. Having spent a lot of time around Janet, we hear, Elliot was used to the way she shifted smoothly and without warning from irony and aggression to honest expressions of actual authentic human emotion. I love this section, and I loved it because Lev Grossman did not have to do this uh-huh. with Elliot and Janet, That's right? right? This book would have gotten along just fine without them ever revealing hidden depths of humanity. And it's scenes like this that make me a lot more willing to forgive things like bringing Alice back for the purpose of deepening Quentin's character. Like, that is a writer's trick. That is a thing a writer does to make the book work and to make a character mean more to us. And I'm willing to forgive that more because he shows that he does truly care about all these characters, even the ones that initially we had no reason to care about even a little bit. Think of it this way. He could have had Quentin start dating Plum. Like those two could have – like oh another I was writer. so terrified. I was yes. so scared that that was going to happen. Yeah. You should be scared. <laughs> a lot of people would have done that. Been like, perfect. She was a chat win. You know what I mean? It would be fucking awful. But on the other hand, hearing Dan read that again, I'm reminded that I wish that the story would have just focused on – like Janet and Elliot and that whole train instead of just going off the rails with all these other side stories that really didn't pay off for me. I mean, the book starts essentially with Quentin and Plum at this secret meeting to try and see how good they are at magic Mm. with trying to find a suitcase. And that whole thing has such little payoff. Like it is essentially the narrative of the story because in that suitcase is the additional Chatwin memoir and then there's the knife that kills the god which we don't even know about at all that happens right. behind the scenes which should have happened in the book because everyone I feel like a lot of readers <laughs> wanted to know more about that scene sorry it's just to I guess elaborate a little bit more just basically so yeah the book opens with a heist really the first yes. third of the book is more or less devoted to a heist sequence in which Quentin and Plum who is a, a character he meets at break bills when he becomes a professor who then gets expelled at the same time Quentin gets fired join this sort of motley group for an Italian job style <laughs> heist of a suitcase from a magical couple at the behest of a talking bird and a golem I guess right yep and it's actually a pretty great action sequence, I thought, and a super mm. fun, you know, a super fun chase and a big fight and a good payoff. And it is true that the entire purpose of this, the entire first third of the book basically is so that they can get this book. 
So in a movie or a TV show, I can see why this like little story is necessary. Mm -hmm. But in a book where he's demonstrated that he's so capable of creating interesting characters, mm -hmm. to bring in so many additional characters that then almost immediately die mm -hmm. seems like not a good use of a third of the book because there's so much story to tell and then you're introducing this whole other thing that is kind of unnecessary. I don't really mind the introduction of the randos in the heist. I would like to have a little bit of an argument about Plum, but maybe we won't have an argument at all because she, I think, is the real big failing of this book in that I don't even really understand why her character was is here at all. Is it just because they need a Chatwin? But I don't really care about the Chatwins. Is it just because we need someone young for the young people to relate to? No. No, because no. all these characters basically are still sort of a little bit young themselves. Yeah. But so why is she here? I, I, I have this vision of this alternate idea of this book where, in fact, the first third of the book is a little bit of the heist and then Asmo, who mm. gets the knife, yeah. going all off right. and killing the fox and then being like, that Quentin guy was OK. I'm going to go back and see if I can help him with what he's up to. And then she's the one who goes through all this other stuff with him. And she's the character in the entire second act and third act of the book instead of Plum, who like made no impression on me whatsoever. And then she and Janet become best friends. Yes, that would be great if Asmo and Janet became best friends. You could engineer that. Plum's connection to break bills really helps, too, though. This is the thing. I guess. I mean, but it doesn't have. He doesn't have to meet her at break bills. Think about it this wow. way: if she isn't at break bills, then Alice doesn't come back. Ooh. Is that true? Is it? it does Plum Alice... is the one. Plum is the one who yep. brings Alice into that's the story. Right. Yeah, that's, that's through true. the mirror. Yep. Yeah. But... Oh God! It's you know, it's no, a house it... of cards. I know, but you could. That could all have been engineered. I guess. I mean, mm -hmm. Lev Grossman is really good at working around shit. And so I would be really curious just to hear him say, oh, I feel like Plum delivered this to the story that the story otherwise would not have had. Not plot elements, but what did her character deliver to the story that the story otherwise didn't have? She – pluck? I don't know. I, I, the story is not short on people with pluck. We already have a sassy Australian. I'm actually forgetting what happens to her at the end of the book. Does she stay in Fillory? She stays in Fillory because she wants to explore it. Yeah, she's very excited to be there and she's like, I'm going to hang out for a while. I would love to see Lev Grossman's rejected Scrivener cards. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I mean there's, I'm sure he outlined this book five different ways oh, yeah. at least. Yeah. And I can see how he came to this. It is true that there's reveals in this book, right? The reveal of Asmo is great. Though she's literally like, bye, I got the knife, peace out. And then you're like, oh, we're on her side. And that taking place off screen is hard, especially when you have the rape taking place on, literally very much on screen. Although I don't know that that scene would actually be that narratively satisfying. No. It would be emotionally satisfying, but there really would be nothing to it other than her finding him and killing him. There could be. Like, he could create a whole narrative around that. He yeah. could create, like, a whole mythology around how she kills him and why she kills him. And, like, mm -hmm. there could be, like, a deeper part of that scene, mm -hmm. which would have been very fulfilling. Were you guys happy to um, go back to break bills at the beginning when Quentin became a teacher? I was indifferent, honestly. Oh, really? He's so detached from it mm -hmm. and so depressed. Well, the Which one thing hard, the one yeah. thing that was interesting to me is I didn't remember that whole part about him not having a specialty. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that. And either. then like that oh, became like huge. that became yeah. That, I mean, then I remembered that it was a huge thing in book one. But then in book three, I was like, okay, so his specialty is like seems irrelevant. Like if I thought there was going to be it, well, the payoff was supposed to be that that was yeah. how he rebuilt Fillory at the end. Yeah, was that, that was his specialty. He made things. He repaired things that were broken, right? Totally. They go big on it in the, in the right. pages. Right, it's true. I guess at that point I was kind of like so upset about Fillory coming back that I was yeah. just... I mean, I actually liked... Uh, I really liked the, all those moments in the At Break Bills in which Quentin... Actually, there's a great line that I'm going to read. It's on page 24 where Quentin is 
He gets back to Fillory and someone deigns to give him a job. The dean deigns to give him a job. And he, like, gets rained on a lot. And then he finds out that his his specialty is not, like, interdimensional travel but repair of small objects. And on page 24 he goes, That was a bit of an anticlimax. You couldn't call it sexy exactly. Not breaking new ground so much. He wouldn't be striding between dimensions or calling down thunderbolts or manifesting Patroni, not on the strength of repair of small objects. Life was briskly and efficiently stripping Quentin of his last delusions about himself, one by one. And one of the things I did appreciate about this book was the way it did spend the first act, basically, doing that to Quentin. Like, ridding him for the last time of this notion that he is special and that the story of his life Mm -hmm. is going to be an epic. Now, of course, that's somewhat undercut by the fact that Act 2 and Act 3 re-deliver to him the notion that his story is epic and he is special and he, in fact, brings someone back to life like God and then rebuilds an entire world. So mixed messages, I guess? Totally mixed messages. Okay. (laughs) Well, right. It's the fantasy idea of that you get that reward when you give up. You know what I mean? It's like – it's which is a little – which is worse than a mixed message. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, too, watching us nitpick, like, these books, too. I mean, I get when people hate these books. Like, most people I know who have thrown it down, they throw it down about 40 pages into book one because they're like, what is this Harry Potter garbage? And they don't feel right, it. Right, right. And then they throw it down in book two, and they're literally like, Fox God rape, oh, no. So I get when people hate these, but they're very elaborately staged, And as frustrating as some of the things are when he manages a large cast of characters, I do think the reveal stuff is pretty spectacularly done a lot of the times. Yes. I feel like he is really, really good at the big set pieces, Mm -hmm. the ones that often are where books like this fall down. He's really good, for example, at describing what it feels like to do magic. And he's very good at delineating between the little magic that you do in the everyday and the big magic that comes out of you in big, crucial set-piece moments. And I found that endlessly rewarding as I was reading this, finding the different ways that Lev Grossman found to describe to me what it felt like to do magic and what it felt like when things got out of control in a fight or a battle or a heist or whatever. Like, that was really satisfying to me. And so in the end... What I get out of these books are these series of very bright moments that I will remember with a bunch of mythology that I don't give a shit about and some characters who I really liked. Like to me, that's totally worth it. I will buy into a trilogy if that's what I get out of it, even if at the end the actual like cosmology and philosophy of it is not internally consistent. That is not what's important to me as a reader of this kind of book. So here I'm going to pull a page out of the book and basically say, I agree. Like with all, <laughs> with, all of my, with all of my critiques that I just gave and all of the problems I had with it, I really, really liked books one and two. And uh-huh. I really, really feel like book three kind of is essential to the package. In my head, I could never stop at book two and be like, okay, book three, I'm not going to read because I'm not going to acknowledge because I didn't like right. it in that way. Book three made you mad, but it's not like you wish you hadn't read it. I have issues with it, but I really feel connect, not connected, but I really feel an appreciation and love for these characters and I want to see how they progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that that part Lev Grossman does really well, even if I disagree with some steps he takes. I think that everything you just said, how he describes their emotions, how he describes how they use magic is very compelling. Remember that bit about even when they're playing that card game and about how a deck of cards is like a whole box full of Schrodinger's cats? Like, that's great. He's really good at that shit. <laughs> I love that stuff. All right, Corey. So in the end, would you recommend to some poor bastard who has not read these books at all that they get started? 
I'm scared to do that again. I had a lot of people come to me and be like, I read your Slate thing and I started those books and I hate them. And I'm like, well, why are you reading sci-fi fantasy melange? Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is not for you. Like, it's very obvious what these books are. And they're packaged in a way that is meant to suggest that this is the fantasy book even for people who don't like fantasy. And that's not really I don't know really that that's true. true. I kind of – so I actually – disagree a little bit because I am not a normal fantasy reader. I read occasionally if someone recommends it, but this book really resonated with me because these characters, while they're part of a fantasy world, they're also part of the world that we all exist in. So it's a very, like I guess, bridge between the two worlds. So it is relatable. It is accessible to someone who, for example, doesn't want to read Lord of the Rings that is set in a completely fantastical world. Mm -hmm. You should reread that stuff. It's a real (laughs) stinker. Oh yeah, don't. Don't do that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mary McCorry, for joining me for this conversation. It was fun. I really liked the book maybe a lot more than you guys did, but I also realized I was reading it a hundred times more shallowly than either of you were, which maybe is the right way to read it. Uh, a program note. Our next audiobook club selection is Karen Joy Fowler's Booker Prize nominated We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, the story of a very uncommon but all-too-human family. Read it and join us for the discussion on December 5th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And please leave a comment while you're there. It helps other people find the show. Our producer is Joel Meyer, the new managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Also, we're produced by Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Miriam Cruel and Corey Sika, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.